All right, very warm welcome, everybody. We are back here with the, the Didactic Mind podcast. This is Didactic Mind, episode 51, The Darwinian Devolution. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers from the blog. A very warm welcome to my SoundCloud subscribers. Uh, <clears throat> if you have not subscribed already, please hit that uh, subscribe button on SoundCloud right now and you will never miss a new upload that way. Also, be sure to check out my Troublesome Truths podcast. It's not my podcast, excuse me. It's a podcast that I do in collaboration with a good friend of mine, Kyle Trouble. Uh, You can find the links in my site, and I'll also put a link in the description box um, to this podcast. Uh, Basically, if you want to go find the Troublesome Truths podcast, go to my site, didacticmind.com. Go to Didact's Ecumene which is in the menu bar. Go down to Troublesome Truths and you'll get a full list of all the episodes. We're up to two episodes right now. Uh, another one should be dropping tomorrow and a fourth should be dropping on um, fr- uh, Thursday, I think. And uh, those are, they're actually a lot of fun. They're uh, like 30 minutes, well, the first one was an hour long, uh, a bit over, in fact. Um, but subsequent episodes, we try to keep them down to 30 minutes each. And uh, they're a lot of fun. It's basically two guys, uh, two friends, talking about issues of the day, giving each other a bit of a ribbing once in a while, and uh, just trying to explain our way of looking at the world through kind of a red pill lens. Um, Kyle is a very secular guy, and uh, he makes no apologies for that. I uh, completely respect his uh, his his views, um, which come from a secular and materialistic point of view, and. Um, that's fine, you know, it's not a problem. Um, he and I, um, he and I get along very, very well. We've done a, a, a course together online, which, uh, uh, well, I'm not going to reveal anything about it now, but uh, a couple of my readers uh, subscribed to it, bought it, and I hope they enjoyed it. Um, but I think all I'm going to say on that subject is that the materials from that course are going to become very, very relevant in the very near future. Uh, it's going to become a um, a major issue after November fourth, uh, on and after November fourth. Um, I do want to take a moment to express my deep, heartfelt gratitude to everybody who has subscribed to my blog. Uh, well, to not, it's not really a blog anymore; it's a site. Um, <clears throat> I basically uh, had a number of conversations with a lot of people that I know personally and maybe not personally, but who I've spoken to via email and uh, even on the phone. And over the last couple of months, I've just been feeling a real sense of despair and hopelessness in the community, that um, in various communities that I'm a part of. People are just like, this world doesn't make sense anymore, and I don't want to be part of it. They're, they're checking out, uh, almost. And they're, they're under suppression and oppression and attack like never before. And it's horrifying to watch. And I got angry. I got really angry. Uh, not with them, not with the men in question, but with this sense of despair that's taken over uh, so many of us, myself included, in fact. And I just said to myself, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. Um, I'm going to do something about it. And I wrote up a post called... Um, the few, the strong, the brave, which got a very, very strong reaction. 
from a lot of my readership. They were like, wow, I mean, we needed this. This is amazing. We needed somebody to say these things. So I said it. And what I said was very clearly, um, we need to focus young men today, men in general, but young men in particular today, so that they understand their purpose, they understand what they're doing, they uh, do not give in to despair, excuse me, they are not um, worried and frustrated constantly, they are not, they are prepared for the world as it is, they don't see the misery and the uh, fear and the, the hopelessness around them as something that cannot be fought. They, we, basically what I'm trying to do is train warriors, uh, people who will learn from the examples of broken men like me and people who have made all the wrong choices like me and will choose not to make those same mistakes and will go on to fight for the Lord, for their nations, for their families, their tribes. That's what I wanted to build. And uh, when I added a subscription uh, to my website, uh, which you can, I'll, I'll drop a link to that in, um, in the SoundCloud box as well. So you can subscribe directly to the website and you'll get emails from me personally as well uh, in the process because it's basically a, not exactly daily, but pretty close to daily newsletter which I write up entirely on my own. Everything is, is entirely mine. All of this content, everything that you're hearing, everything that you're seeing, it's all me. Um, so, uh, basically, my goal is to turn my site into a place, a beacon of hope and inspiration. And I want men to go there and feel like uh, they can move beyond the political bullshit and the insanity and the nonsense. And they can come away with a positive feeling of what it means to be a man, what it means to stand and fight, how to do that, how exactly how you do that, how to make themselves better and stronger and tougher and more dangerous. And uh, the, re the reaction I've gotten is overwhelming. And uh, I am just so grateful to all of you who, who subscribed. And for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Um, because you guys gave me hope. Uh, for the first time in a very, very long time, I understand what I'm here to do. I have been praying and praying and praying for months for God to tell me what it is that he wants from me, what it is that I'm supposed to do. And I got no answer. Uh, I, I, I had no idea what it was that I was supposed to do. I was just tested and broken down constantly um, with some very, very difficult, very brutal tests, especially over the last eight months. It's just been really, really hard. Uh, and it was getting to the point where I was just worn out. I couldn't take it anymore. I, I, could, I, was, I was pretty much at my lowest ebb, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't take this anymore. And then I heard from a friend of mine in South Africa who's going through a brutal custody battle with his, um, with, well, I won't go into too many details, but brutal custody battle with his ex-wife. And he told me um, what he's going through. And another reader of mine wrote in to, in the comments section, he told me what he's gone through, you know, the end of a 22-year marriage, um, homelessness, poverty, 
uh, joblessness, despair. And I'm sitting there going like, I've got a great, I've got a good life. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. So what am I bitching about? Um, it's high time I stop bitching and start doing. And that's the point of didactic mind now. It's, uh, it is very much an agogi, uh, a training school, a lyceum, if you will, for warriors, gladiators, men of purpose who understand what it is they want in life and are going to go out and get it. That's what I'm building. And I want you to be a part of it. I want you to get involved. I want you to subscribe to that blog, subscribe to the site. I want you to get my daily emails. Well, not daily, but close to it. I am going to be putting together products and guides uh, and posts and articles uh, designed specifically to help you achieve these ends. And it's not going to be kind of like Return of Kings, which was very heavily advertiser-dependent, and um, while it was red-pilled, it was always very secular in nature. And I think that's one of the reasons why it failed, is because it was secular. Uh, when you try to build self-improvement on a found on a secular foundation, most of the time you're going to fail. Because while the red pill is built out of truths, if you deny the most fundamental truth there is, the fundamental truth of Jesus Christ as Lord and King, of God the Father of Jesus Christ of Nazareth as creator of the universe, if you deny that fundamental truth, you cannot get anywhere. Everything else stops, to, stops working. Everything else becomes irrelevant until you understand that Jesus was sent down for you, that he died for you, that he came back to life was brought back to life by the Heavenly Father, and that He ascended to heaven and waits there for you now, and intercedes with the Father on a daily basis, every single day, just for you. And until you understand this truth, until you realize that every word in that book about Jesus Christ is true, you won't get anywhere. And that's the overriding lesson of my life. That's the lesson I want to teach other people. So, with that lengthy introduction, um, you know, out of the way, I suppose, uh, I want to get to the actual topic of today's discussion, which is um, a bit is related, but uh, a bit different. And it has to do with the nature of that book, the Bible. And it has to do with the question of how did we get here and how did we come to be and, you know, did we arrive at this point in our lives through a process of random evolutionary change? Or was there something behind it all, a higher intelligence, a design? Um, the two points of view are not as incompatible as most people think. Uh, now, before I start, let me make this very, very, very clear. I am not a biologist. I am not a synthetic organic chemist. I am not an evolutionary psychologist. I have no background whatsoever in the evolutionary sciences, in chemistry. Uh, I have only a small amount of understanding of physics. My background and my training is in mathematics. Okay. If I make a mistake in what I tell you today, that is my fault and I humbly apologize. 
I am happy to be corrected by people with experience in these fields. But I don't think that's going to happen because if I make a mistake, it's only going to be because I misquoted somebody. And if I misquote somebody, you know me by now, I provide my sources in the comment box, in the form of videos, in the form of articles. You can go check for yourself and see whether I told the truth. And if I didn't, you can hold me accountable to that. But you can go check for yourself. So, if I misquoted somebody, that's my fault, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not getting the details wrong. Because the arguments and the details have been debated and done over by men far superior to me in intelligence and intellect and experience. And the ideas that I'm going to present, while they are not mine, have integrity and truth to them. So let's look at this um, issue of evolution. And there's a, a, a great movie, um, really well done, uh, called Is Genesis History? Uh, it's done by a Christian ministry somewhere in the United States. Very, very, very good uh, production values. Very well produced. Not um, polemical, not particularly confrontational. It basically just involves a guy with a background in computer science, I think, uh, going to a bunch of very, very eminent scientists and asking them a lot of questions. That's all it is. It's just a very friendly, very laid-back sort of examination of whether or not we can consider the book of Genesis to be history. Now, what am I talking about when I say the book of Genesis? I'm specifically talking about the Genesis account of creation. And I'm talking about Genesis, um, essentially, chapters, well, chapters 1 through about 11, more or less. That's, that's, that's what the, this, this documentary goes into. Let's remind ourselves what chapter Genesis chapter 1 says. Okay? Uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have a different version, no problem, but the translation is more or less going to be the same. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and the trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let, there be, let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater, right, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, that's up to verse 28. I don't really want to read anymore, because, I mean, as you can see, the the... Old Testament language is a bit tendentious and it's a bit slow and repetitive. And I was like, okay, fine. I mean, that was the writing style back then. Okay, whatever. But you see the problem. Because if this is true, then the scientific accounts of how we got here are not true. The scientific account, let us remind us of, the, the, the scientific account of how life came to be is in general, and I am generalizing very heavily here, a slow fractional change process. Basically, you have small little little steps that are taken, small mutations, small evolutionary adaptations that come forth and which adapt organisms to their environment and allow successful organisms to thrive and unsuccessful organisms to die out. And we call this process natural selection or uh, gene mutation or gene drift, um, sexual selection, and so on. It's uh, it's a most people most most people who are not educated on the subject, which is most of us actually, self included by the way. Um, consider the current state of the evolutionary debate to be all about evolution through natural selection or the theory of evolution by natural selection. That is not actually the case. Uh, if you look at the current literature on the subject. We do not have a theory of evolution by natural selection. The full theory, the full modern synthesis is actually called the theory of evolution by probably natural selection, biological mutation, genetic drift, sexual selection, and gene flow. It's a very clunky acronym. It's not my acronym. This one comes from our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, unto him be peace, uh, Voxamort the Malevolent, Vox Dei himself. And he's been taking a hammer and chisel 
to the entire edifice of Darwinism and um, academic biological determinism for about 20 years, and he's been doing a damn good job of it. Now, the reason he's been hammering away at this edifice is because the, the, um, the evolutionists have this paradigm which basically says that life evolved in all of its amazing complexity and variety um, over millions and billions of years to get to the point where we are now. And it was generally a slow, gradual process. It did not um, happen spontaneously. It, uh, it, evolution takes a long time. And um, it, 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 it is generally, uh, it generally happens at, a, at, at some rate. Now, the problem is that biologists are not particularly good at maths. Uh, and again, not me saying that, although I agree with it. Um, biologists don't do much mathematics, because if they did, they would quickly realize what Vox Day realized very fast, which is that the moment you try to pin them down and tell them, okay, you have a theory, you have a hypothesis of how everything evolved out to what it is today, you should therefore be able to measure for me the exact rate, or give me an estimate at least, of the rate of speciation. What is speciation? It means what is the rate at which one species evolves into another. And I'm going to get into an example which I laid out in a very precise blog post um, back in, well, a year and a half ago, uh, in which I provided mathematical measurable arguments, uh, or uh, mathematical formula, I should say, that you can test. You should be able to test this. If you're a biologist, you should be able to test this. So the, the, the biologist's or evolutionist's paradigm is slow incremental change over millions and billions of years. And this is, um, this is illustrated by uh, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. And he talks about it in videos associated with The God Delusion, where he talks about scaling Mount Improbable. And he uses a, <clears throat> a very bad metaphor, actually. He basically, he, he basically talks about going up to a sheer cliff face and uh, he, he uses the metaphor this thusly. Um, essentially, creationists or intelligent design advocates say that uh, we started at the bottom of this cliff and then we're all the way up the top and that something had to help us get up this, this cliff, you know, like with a jetpack almost. And he says that doesn't make any sense. If you go around to the back of the cliff and you look at the pathway to the top, it is much more negotiable, and you get there through small, winding, incremental little changes. Okay, fine. You should be able to test that hypothesis. You should be able to test it and tell us whether or not it works. And the point made in Is Genesis History is that the central issue, the central difference between the Genesis account and the biologist account is time. If you have lots of time, you can get to, in theory at least, the biologists, or I'm using the term biologist and evolutionist in, uh, interchangeably. This is not actually fair, and I apologize for that. Um, I will probably continue to make that mistake, but understand that when I say evolutionist, I'm talking about a very specific type of person. If I say biologist, it is not true that all biologists are 
uh, ergo evolutionists. They don't all believe in evolution, the theory of evolution by natural selection, as a matter of dogma. Um, and vice versa. I mean, not, you know, a lot of evolutionists are not trained in any form of biology or synthetic chemistry or anything that gives them any remotely any qualifications to 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 talk about these issues um, in any sensible way. But <clears throat> the the fundamental difference between the two paradigms, Genesis on the one hand, which says that everything came out of this explosion of life, um, and these kinds that we have today are, are the result of evolution and evolutionary pressures. Um, that's one paradigm, and on the other hand, you have this paradigm of very, very slow change over a very long time. What you're going to find is the more you look into this subject, the more you look into this issue, the issue of time is central. And the evolutionist perspective cannot handle challenges to that issue. Because there are a number of challenges which they can't handle. Um, there is an excellent uh, uh, Uncommon Knowledge episode with Peter Robinson. I'll put the video down in the description box. Which it consists of a, 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 an interview with three brilliant men. I mean, you know, awe-inspiring academics. Uh, Dr. David Belinsky, you may recognize his name. He's a computer science professor at Yale University. You probably recognize his name for all the wrong reasons. He was a victim of the Unabomber. And uh, if you watch the video, you can see um, the effect that the Unabomber's um, attack had on him. Uh, his, his whole left side is still badly scarred, and his right hand is in a glove, and it's, it's maimed very badly. Um, Dr. David Berlinski, a mathematician and philosopher who lives in France, and uh, Stephen Meyer. I don't think he's a PhD. I could be mistaken. Um, but these three men are basically Darwinian skeptics. They, they're, what they're saying is, there are problems with the Darwinian account of how, how we got to this point. The Darwinian account depends on natural selection. Now, what is natural selection? Well, again, if you look at the literature, natural selection simply means that uh, traits that are adapted to a particular environment get selected, and traits that are not adapted get weeded out very quickly. And <clears throat> the the examples provided by Darwin, the most notorious and famous ones, are of the finch's beaks, where he went to the Galapagos Islands and he observed that some finches had beaks that were bigger than others, and he could see over time that these beaks, these bigger beaks, which were designed for crushing nuts and seeds, um, won out over birds with smaller beaks. So uh, natural selection from the environment, environmental pressures, ensured that certain, certain organized organisms survived and others did not. Here's the problem, though. Darwin himself understood at the time that the fossil record did not support his theory. He believed that you could explain the entire proliferation of life across the entire world and its diversity and variety and astonishing uh, complexity through infinite time. At the time that he wrote this, the, the, the dominant paradigm of science was that the universe was infinitely old and had always existed. That was the scientific consensus. It's since been proven completely wrong. And we now know that the universe had a definite beginning. And, in fact, that beginning looked an awful lot 
like um, the account described in Genesis. The Big Bang. Let there be light. <laughs> there you go. Massive expansion in, in, in a tiny fraction, of, you know, in a tiny instant. G colossal expansion, un inconceivable light and heat uh, creating all the matter that we see today. And on top of which, there are so many mysteries about um, the way the universe exists right now. You know, the, the rate of spin of galaxies, which is way too fast um, for, uh, for the amount of matter that they contain. Uh, if, you know, why are they, and, and for their age, uh, the existence of certain intergalactic and intragalactic phenomena that just don't make any sense. Um, the inability of the standard model of physics to explain very specific quandaries and problems that actually are explained very, very well once you adopt a genesis-centric approach. All of these things come together to pose some very serious, strong challenges to the evolutionist's argument. There's one moment in uh, the Uncommon Knowledge episode where Stephen Meyer talks about, um, I think, was it the Cambrian Explosion? Cambrian Explosion. Um, because there is a, a proliferation of life that happens. Yeah, here we go. The Cambrian explosion uh, or Cambrian radiation event uh, is about 541 million years ago. And it's a very, very strange event. Because all of a sudden, you have life appearing out of nowhere. Life just appearing. Where did it come from? Previously, you had either no life or just, you know, single-celled organisms. And now all of a sudden, within a space of about 30 million years, which in evolutionary terms is no time whatsoever compared to the uh, 4.5 billion, supposed 4.5 billion year a, uh, age of the Earth, 30 million years is nothing. Um, how is it possible that all of this life just spontaneously appeared? We don't know. We still don't know. The evolutionists can't explain it. It's not part of their model. It falls completely outside of their data set. And it's a huge gaping hole in their approach. Now, in terms of testing the theory of Darwinian evolution, how can we test it? Well, <clears throat> they say, the, the evolutionists say, that life evolves according to this theory of natural selection. Now, let me make it very, very clear. Evolution is a fact, indisputably a fact. You can see it for yourself. It's not hard. You can see species evolve through the fossil record. You can, in fact, uh, observe it among dog breeds. You can see it. You can see how people go from one dog breed to another over time uh, through mutations. It is possible to observe it. You can create a new species or a new subcategory of dog. You can create a new type of dog from an existing dog template. We know that. That's why dog breeders exist. Okay? We know that this is possible. We see it in front of our eyes. Natural selection is a fact. It can be observed in a laboratory. If you put uh, bacteria in a petri dish and then you, in, you introduce some um, outside force into that petri dish, because that's its own microcosm basically, what you're going to realize is that the, petri, the, the bacteria in the petri dish, some of them will survive and some of them will die. And the ones that survive, like let's say you introduce some sort of antibiotic um, agent into the petri dish, 
the bugs, that, the bacteria that survive, will have some sort of built-up immunity to that antibiotic. So as you kill off, uh, you, you apply that antibiotic time and time and time again, the mutations in that cellular structure and code, which allow those bacteria to survive, will get propagated into the next generations, until eventually you're going to arrive at a bacterium which is immune to whatever agent you're applying against it. You can see that. We have seen it. It's been proven so many times, we can accept it as a fact. Evolution by natural selection is nothing more than a theory and not a very good one. And here's why. Uh, back in February of 2019, uh, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, uh, did a dark stream, dark stream number 304 to be precise, and called it the nail in the coffin of human evolution. And he came up with a mathematical target for this theory of evolution by natural selection. And he used um, the supposed common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans. Supposedly, chimps and humans descended from a last common human ancestor, or a last common ancestor, I should say. Uh, the the uh, last, uh, what's it called? The chimp-human last common ancestor, literally CHLCA. And there is supposed to be a time period where this happened uh, sometime in the past. The range, the estimates range from the, about 4 million years ago to 25 million years ago. The consensus seems to be about 9 million years ago for the, for the existence of the chimp-human last common ancestor. And we know that there are a huge number of genetic differences between humans and chimps. That's well known. I mean, duh, right? Humans aren't chimps, to state the bloody obvious. Um, the, uh, the, the total number of mutations uh, between that, that change us from chimps to humans are 40 million. There are 40 million total mutations that are different between us and them. And that's despite us sharing, what is it, 98-something percent of our DNA, something like that. It's that 2% difference that, that causes all the problems. Um, by the way, uh, this issue of um, chimp and human being, being so radically different has caused so many problems with the, you know, the, the narrative about us being descended from apes. Uh, it's not even funny. Go look up the uh, scandal involving um, Lucy the you know supposed missing link in the evolutionary chain turns out there's a lot of malfeasance that went on around um, digging up and excavating Lucy's skeleton and in fact um, bones from monkeys uh, rhesus monkeys were added and was it rhesus monkeys or baboons I forget, I forget exactly um, were added into that skeleton to fit the preconceived notions of the leakies who excavated the skeleton uh, in reality, that skeleton was much closer to a monkey than it was to a human. There was nothing um, in the bones that were found to indicate significant resemblance to a human. Uh, the, the issue of the missing link is still very much a missing link, and in fact, there are a huge number of missing links out there. So, again, 40 million total mutations, 20 million human, 20 million chimp, between us and them. And we need to know the uh, number of generations, um, you know, the average time span between different generations for chimps and humans. This is in order to compute uh, the rate of speciation. Basically, we're, what we're trying to come up with is a mathematical target saying this is how long it should take for us to, to see a new species evolve, okay? Because biologists can't do that. They don't have the capacity to do it. They've tried and they don't have the ability. 
They can't predict it. They can't even backtest against the fossil record. So, let's put it together. We have time since CHLCA, 9 million. And if you, if you don't follow the mathematics, don't worry. I have a post written up on this exact subject. You can go look at it. Breaks it all down for you. So if you don't follow it, don't be concerned. Time since chimp-human lost common ancestor, 9 million. Total human gene mutation since CHLCA, 20 million. Time between generations for both species, 20 years. As it turns out, uh, takes about 20 years for a new generation to come through. All right, 1, 2, and 3. Let's divide 1 by 3 to get the total number of generations since chimp-human lost common ancestor. That gives us 9 million divided by 20, which is 450,000 generations. Okay, now... What is the average number of mutations per generation? Well, that's simple too. You divide the second number by the fourth number, which is to say total human gene mutations since CHLCA by total number of generations. So you get average mutations per generation, 44. Okay. Now, we need to know the total number of base pairs that exist in the human genome, and we need to know the observed range of variations between different types of humans. And the reason why we need this is in order to figure out how many mutations have occurred since the so-called chimp-human loss common ancestor. The total number of base pairs existing in the human genome is 3,088,296,401. Again, numbers up on my blog and go look it up in the, in the article. We need to know the observed range of variations between different types of humans between all of humanity, because we're all one species, yes, that's true, but there is significant range of variations between us. That's what determines the fact that, you know, Asian, like East Asians tend to be short and have a uh, particular skin color, and blacks tend to be taller or fatter or skinny or whatever, have more lean muscle mass or less muscle mass, whatever, um, and their skin is pigmented differently. It indicates why Indians have a particular body type and build and skin color and you know, particular jaw structure and so on. It indicates why Scandinavians and Caucasians look the way they do. Scandinavians in particular, why are they so white? So on and so forth. So there's all these different expressions of genetics. And the total number of uh, observed range of variations between different humans, which is to say the observed range of mutations, is 324 million base pairs. Okay? Since chimps and humans are not Chimps and humans are different. We can all accept this, I hope, but chimpanzees are not humans. That means that chimps have 40 million DNA base pairs that are not and cannot possibly be human. I think we can all agree on that. Okay, so if there are 44 mutations per generation for humans, we should be able to look at the oldest set of human DNA ever sequenced and figure out how many mutations have taken place since then. The oldest human DNA ever sequenced is 430,000 years old. This uh, may have changed. I don't, I haven't heard that it has, but it may have changed. I don't know. Um, so the total number of generations between the oldest human DNA and us is 21,500. Again, just divide 430,000 by 21,500. Okay. So the total mutation since the oldest human DNA is 955,556. So it's about a million mutations since the oldest human DNA. Why is that? You basically just multiply the total number of generations since the oldest human DNA by the average number of mutations per generation. All right. 
what does this all mean? It's quite complicated, but what does it all mean? Um, what it means is that we should be able to find a million genetic base pair differences between modern humans and ancient humans, if the evolutionary synthesis is correct. If it's correct, this is a target. They should be able to prove to us that there's been about a million base pair differences between current human beings, you and me, and ancient human beings 430,000 years ago. They should be able to prove that. Will they? I don't know. I haven't seen the data. I haven't seen the papers. Maybe it's out there. Maybe it is. I don't know. But this is a target that if the theory of evolution by natural selection is correct, which says that evolutionary changes happen slowly over time through mutations in the gene code and through changes in information that are passed down from one generation to the next, if that's true, then this is the number that they should be able to prove. If not a, this exact number, then they should be able to give us a range. And in fact, we can come up with that range. So we can come up, you know, and I lay it all out on a spreadsheet, we should be able to come up with something between 344,000 and 2.15 million base pair differences between ancient humans, uh, like really ancient humans from 430,000 years ago, and modern humans. Okay? This is the mathematical standard. Whatever it is that, you know, it turns out to be, these mutations have to be genetically distinct from the available spectrum of 324 million mutations in modern humans. So modern humans have all these mutations, right? 324 million mutations from the base genome. We should be therefore able to find somewhere between 344,000 and 2.15 million mutations in base pair mutations from 430,000 years ago that are distinct from and unique from the 324 million that we have today. I know I'm throwing around a lot of crazy numbers. I know it. I get it. Okay, it's, it's hard to follow this. I'm telling you, just go read the article on my site. It'll break it all down for you in written form. It's got nice pictures, nice graphs. Well, not graphs, but nice uh, tables. It's all written down for you. So you don't have to worry about following me too much. If, that, if the neo-Darwinian synthesis is true, they should be able to come up with a number and show it to us. But they can't, or they haven't yet, at least. Now, the thing is, um, you can actually come up with a, f a mathematical formula for this. The total number of mutations since oldest human DNA is mutation since chimp human last common ancestor times age of oldest human DNA divided by time since chimp human last common ancestor. And again, remember, time is the critical variable here. You can see it all throughout these equations. If you do a little bit of mathematical manipulation, what you're going to find is a multiple regression formula. And it's not a very good regression formula, I know. I, I, I do a lot of statistics, uh, or I did. Um, this is not a particularly robust regression equation because of the multicollinearity exhibited by correlations in all of these three variables with time. It's not a strong formula, but it's a formula. So we should be able to use it. All right. Now, can we use it? Yes. Should we use it? Absolutely. The thing to remember and understand about the Darwinian or the neo-Darwinian synthesis is that it doesn't have a falsification criterion. If it's a true theory, it should be falsifiable. 
It's not that way with the Genesis account. We have full survival criteria. Look at what I read out from Genesis itself. There are things in Genesis which don't jibe with our modern understanding, but we can come up with explanations for them. If you go look at um, Sarah Salviander's site, uh, Stickwick, she's known as Stickwick on uh, Vox Day's blog. Sarah Salviander is a former atheist who became a uh, devout Christian and um, has a PhD in astrophysics. This is one very, very, very smart woman. Uh, she laid it all out in a beautiful um, slide share presentation. And it's 141 slides long, but it's phenomenally I informative and interesting. And I'll link it in, um, excuse me, in the blog, uh, in, in, the, in the post for this, and in the uh, comments box. And you'll be able to see for yourself what it is that she says. And it's absolutely fascinating. She provides a very cogent, coherent explanation for some of the contradictions that we see in the Genesis account, such as how is it that plants and, um, and trees emerged before the sun and moon came out? How is it that the sun and moon came into existence the way that they are described when we know from cosmology that the sun is essentially the result of gases coalescing from the remnants of a, you know, a red hypergiant which died um, and created our stellar neighborhood, uh, and the rocky planets are the result of the metals that were cast out by, uh, you know, a star exploding, and the gas giants are the accumulation of gases from, from a very long time ago, and and so on and so forth. How do like, and the the moon <clears throat> is the result of a colossal collision between two planetary bodies. We have pretty good evidence of this. How do we know that this is true? Like, how do we know that Genesis is an accurate accounting? Here's the thing, though. As a Christian, I can say the burden of proof is on me to go and find if this is true. But here's the thing. The more I look, the more it's proven. The more it makes sense. The more it becomes clear that the language in Genesis is just an extremely pithy summation of things that already happened. It's just a very, very condensed, extremely condensed version of events. And I'll give you a very simple example. The, the, the account of the flood. It's a very short accounting of an, a, a pivotal moment in, in, in Earth's history. If you look at the account of the flood, um, it's you know, just a few lines, basically. Uh, the account of the flood is basically, um, you know, 11 verses. That's it. 11 verses. And it talks about the destruction of all life on Earth. Does that jibe with what we're seeing in the historical record? Well, kind of. I mean, there are extinction events which killed off 97% of all life on Earth. Does that count? I mean, is that the same as the, the flood of Noah? Um, is there evidence of a global flood event? Yes, in mythology. But is there actual geological, archaeological evidence? There is some that you cannot simply discount it and say it doesn't exist because it does exist. There is evidence. Uh, there is evidence of massive, fast-acting water erosion in the Grand Canyon, which has gone through in his Genesis history. There is evidence of uh, extremely quick action of water, you know, leveling and beveling off m huge amounts of rock. I mean, inconceivably large amounts of material around the world, not in one or two places, but around the world. There is evidence presented in that film 
that we are finding DNA, let me repeat that, we're finding DNA in dinosaur bones. Again, so you can pick yourself up off the floor. We're finding DNA in dinosaur bones. Why is this important? Because dinosaur bones are supposedly, you know, the oldest dinosaurs uh, date back to 60, uh, the, the, the newest dinosaurs date back to 65 million years. Wait a second, DNA starts breaking down after a few thousand years. How can that possibly reconcile? How can it possibly be the case that, you know, I think the oldest amount, the, 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 the longest that DNA can last, even in fossils, is 40,000 years? How can we find DNA that supposedly only lasts 40,000 years? And not only that, we can find actual tissue that you can stretch and pull apart, and it's there, it's in the bones themselves. How can we find tissue material that's in the bones when the bones are supposedly so old, millions and, and hundreds of millions of years old? How can this be? Evolutionists don't have an answer for this. Creationists, I mean, they get a very bad name, and I understand why. I find them a bit... Uh, I find them a bit much myself, but creations do have a point. There are huge holes in the standard narrative which evolutionists cannot explain. They have no ability to figure out why this is happening, and they don't have the mathematical chops to understand why their models are a problem. Here's another good example of where evolutionists have a huge problem with their narrative. The evolutionary narrative says that life basically came out of nothing, that uh, there was a, a sort of uh, primordial soup um, somewhere in the dim and distant past, like three billion years ago, three, three, three to 3.5 billion years. And electricity in the atmosphere caused by lightning um, caused a chemical reaction in that soup of chemicals and hydrocarbons and um, other necessary elements, and the first single-celled organism was formed. Dr. Uh, James Tour, is it Fred Tour? Damn, I forget. I, I gotta go look him up. Um, Dr. Uh, crap, bear with me a second. Dr. Frank Tour, I think is his name. Uh, he was, um, he was associated, he was a, he was a good friend, actually, of the very sadly departed Nabil Qureshi. Yeah, James Tour. And he, um, he has a video up which is talking about the origin of life. James Tour is a synthetic organic chemist. He's not a biologist, he's a synthetic organic chemist. And he understands that the question of the origin of life is one of synthetic organic chemistry. You have to have the right combination of amino acids, lipids, protein chains, hydrocarbons, and uh, um, DNA molecules basically. All in the right combinations, all in the right places, all at the right times, all in the right configurations. And he basically points out the single most devastating indictment of the, the evolutionist's hypothesis, which is that mathematically speaking, it's absolutely impossible. To give you an idea of how impossible it is, here are a couple of numbers. The total amount of matter in the entirety of the universe is estimated to be 10 to the 90 particles, 10 to the 90, um, you know, grams, I think, or whatever it is of, of matter. Um, at that point, I mean, whether you're talking grams or kilograms, it really doesn't matter. But 10 to the 90 something of matter, 10 to the 90 atoms, perhaps, I don't know. 
Understand what that means. That's one with 90 zeros on the, to the right of it. One with 90 zeros. That number defies human comprehension. We can't understand it. It's not possible for us to visualize it. Um, a Google, by the way, for which, you know, um, Google is, derives its name, is one with a hundred zeros. Google, okay? Um, one with 90 zeros after it, that's the total amount of matter in the entirety of the observable universe. The total number of possible interactions within a single yeast bacterium, and the, the single cell of a yeast bacterium, is 10 to the 76 billion. I thought he was misspeaking when, he's, when he uttered that number. Um, the total number of interactions, and again, I'll post the video up. You can go look at it for yourself. He says it around the 20-minute uh, mark, I think, maybe a little earlier. 10 to the 76 billion. That's 1 with 76 billion zeros. Not 90 zeros, 76 billion zeros after it. Mathematically speaking, it is not possible for life to have come out of nothing. The number of combinations of all of the different elements and all of the different protein chains and all of the different um, bits and pieces, building blocks of life that you would need in order to make this happen are so mind-bogglingly complex that it's literally impossible to do. Stephen Meyer made this point in the Uncommon Knowledge episode. If you did a blind random search um, along all of the, the, the various pathways and protein chains and things um, that would yield something useful, like a protein chain that would yield something useful and relevant to our existence as functioning living beings, the probability of that blind random search do, actually coming up with something useful is so small it might as well be zero. I mean, it's like so many, it's, it's not even in the billionths, it's beyond that. It's, it's, in, it's, into the, you know, it's into the trailing zeros so far to the right of the decimal point, you can't even quantify it in a way that makes sense. Planck's constant is like the, the, the smallest unit of measurement that um, is relevant to anything. It's beyond that. The, the probability of finding anything is so tiny, it's beyond that. So it can't even be measured. So what we're looking at then is a series of problems with the evolutionary narrative, and that's before you get to the fact that when an organism mutates, that is not addition of new information. It's not like you know, with X-Men where the X-Men pick up phenomenal new powers through mutation and genetic drift. and whatever. It doesn't actually work that way. Mutation is actually the breaking of information. You take a bit of information, you take a codon, and you break it. Um, and that results in something new. If you take modern dogs, for instance, modern dogs are actually broken versions of ancient wolves. Um, they are, they, or you know, you can make that argument at least. They are not um, necessarily improvements exactly. In many ways, they are significant devolutions from their ancient ancestors. Uh, we think of them as improvements because we look at everything through very, you know, um, anthropocentric eyes, but in fact, modern dogs are significantly weaker, significantly slower, significantly less intelligent, significantly uh, less capable, significantly, you know, they've got a lot of problems, much more disease prone, and so on and so forth. 
especially little dogs which are very specialized and are bred just for cuteness. I mean, they have so many things wrong with them because of all this broken information that had to be had to be broken in order to create that dog breed. Um, this is this is not something that the evolutionists can get over and get past. This is a problem that they have, which they won't admit to. Uh, a final problem I want to bring up about this evolutionary idea is that it results in an extreme materialistic secular point of view that says we are all essentially programmed meat machines. We have no free will of our own. We have no desires of our own. We are simply reacting in completely programmed ways that um, are totally predictable and totally straightforward and you can replicate them in a lab. Therefore, uh, there is no higher purpose to life. There is no meaning to anything. There is no reason for us to uh, seek out anything good. It's just, it's all meaningless. We were not put on this earth to be anything other than meat machines responding to biological programming or psychological programming if you're an evolutionary psychologist. Um, by the way, if you want a truly devastating dis dismembering of the entire profession of evolutionary psychology, I recommend uh, Christopher Robert Holpike's um, Do We Need God to Be Good? Uh, I read it, and it is, uh, it's hard to describe that book as anything other than, in kindest possible terms, a prison rape of the entire field of evolutionary psychology. Um, he treats evolutionary psychologists through prose in a manner that, were it physical action, would be outlawed in all 50 states and would probably uh, be considered cruel and unusual punishment under the Constitution. It's that bad. So, very, very much recommended. Um, I thought it was a phenomenal book. But you see the problem. The, the Darwinian synthesis results in a worldview that says nothing matters and nothing is important, and we are not here to fulfill any higher purpose. Now, I as a Christian completely and totally reject that point of view. I believe that if you look at the problem of evil, that alone completely destroys this argument. Um, but this is one that atheists continue to embrace. It's a ridiculous argument. It means that higher values such as love, uh, compassion, artistry, uh, you know, uh, what else would you, reason, uh, anything like that is irrelevant. It, it has no meaning. And I think it's fair to say that that is something we can reject outright because you see the evidence around us all the time. Altruism, compassion, kindness, etc. These are not evolutionary outgrowings. These are not evolutionary traits that, that we picked up. These are innate in human beings. And again, read Holpike's book. explains exactly why. Um, I am about out of time because it's almost one hour. And I don't like to ramble on too long. So uh, I'll leave it there. Uh, I know that there's a huge amount of ground that I haven't covered because I cannot possibly cover it. This is too broad a subject to cover. But read uh, the blog post uh, on my site about this subject. It's linked in the description box. Check out the books that I've listed. Definitely check out the videos. They're phenomenal. They're incredibly informative. Frank Tour, in particular, is a great speaker. I love listening to him. He's very passionate, very articulate. Stephen Meyer is a lot of fun to listen to because he's just he's, he's almost the antithesis. Very calm very reasoned, very laid back. Uh, but check it out. And, uh, you know, let me know what you think. 
in the comments or via email domainquery at didacticmind.com. This has been Didactic Mind episode 51, The Darwinian Devolution. I am Didact, signing off.